welcome to the Richard Hunter interview. As ever, this is a place where I'll be discussing matters of interest with a whole range of investment experts. In this episode, I'm pleased to be joined by Richard Perrett, one of the portfolio managers of the Morgan Stanley Global Brands Equity Income Fund. Richard joined Morgan Stanley in 2015 and has 15 years of industry experience. Prior to joining the team, he was an equity research analyst at Autonomous Research, covering specialty financials. Before that, Richard covered financials at Berenberg Bank and financials in healthcare at Samford Bernstein. Richard received an MA in Mathematics and Philosophy from St Edmund Hall, Oxford. So, the Global Brands Equity Income Fund, perhaps we could start by your talking us through the strategy and indeed the objectives for the fund. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Global Brands Equity Income, it's a high conviction, concentrated fund in which we hold some of the, the best companies in the world. So, for example, we own the likes of Microsoft, Visa and Procter & Gamble. And what we're looking to do, we're looking to provide our clients strong long-term absolute returns by owning these high-quality, resilient companies that can thrive through the cycle. I'd say that uh, all of the companies we own uh, generate a lot of cash and we anticipate they can continue to compound their cash flows over the long term, which obviously means that they offer the prospect of strong and sustained dividend growth. And, and the reason I mention that is it's, it's probably the approach is somewhat in contrast to many income funds, which tend to focus on stocks with high yields, many of which are from companies operating in troubled industries and whose dividends are ultimately unsustainable. Uh, in terms of overall dividend yield, the fund provides a 4% income yield, and this is generated from a combination of the underlying dividends from the companies we own, as well as a conservative overwrite strategy. Uh, where we sell options to generate additional premium income. And that 4% yield has been achieved since the inception of the fund. Now, in, in terms of the, um, the the fund itself, and I, I think you've already uh, alluded to some of it there, but your, your stocks need to tick a number of boxes for inclusion. Um, perhaps you could mention uh, some of the considerations that those stocks need to go through from your point of view. Absolutely. So um, I'd say first and foremost, uh, we're looking for companies with sustainably high returns on operating capital. And, and how, how, how do companies achieve that? How's that done? It's really by the strength of their intangibles, by, for example, the ownership of a strong brand. Uh, an example there might be, say, Nike and sportswear, or by the operation of a strong network. An example there would be, say, Visa and Payworks and payments. And the, the benefit of these this type of intangible is that really they can offer provide the company strong pricing power and, and very healthy profit margins. In addition, we're looking for companies with a very conservative balance sheet. Uh, the importance of this obviously was shown last year with the impa impact of lockdowns. Um, I guess it, the, the, the crucial nature of a strong balance sheet, it, it never seems like it's a big issue until it is. And it's something that you're always looking for the companies we own to have. Uh, we also look for the companies we own to have a good level of recurring revenues uh, which also provides a cushion in times of distress. I um, say so on top of that, it's vital that the company has a capable management team that can allocate capital well. And by allocating capital well, we mean one that reinvests in high return areas, or if not, returns capital to shareholders via dividends. And I can't, we obviously can't stress the importance of that. It's all very well having a, a very strong company operationally, but if the management team doesn't allocate capital well, 
if it squanders capital or invests it in the wrong places, obviously that can be very damaging to the to the investor. So, I mean, taken together, if, if a company enjoys all those characteristics, we can then have a, a sort of high conviction and the ability of that company to compound its earnings and cash flow over time. And that's really the kind of company we're looking for, these, these long-term compounders. And obviously, needless to say, these, these companies are somewhat few and far between. So when we do find one we like and we do find it's trading at a reasonable valuation, we tend to tend to like them a lot. Um, as I said before, it's a concentrated portfolio, so we own significant stakes in many of the companies uh, we like. So notwithstanding the fact that what you're describing is, uh, sounds very much like a bottom-up approach, how does the uh, geographical and indeed sector allocations break out for the fund? Absolutely. And as you say, that's exactly right. Right in terms of understanding, it is a it is a very much a bottom up approach, and and you can sort of see that by by looking at the the split geographically and also by sectors. So if I start with geographically first, so just by listing, the fund is is concentrated entirely in the US and Europe. However, much more important than the listing location is is understanding the underlying economic exposure of the firms we own, and obviously they are all large global companies. So if we look at the, the exposure by revenues and aggregate for the for the companies in the portfolio, then the split is, is much more balanced globally. And in fact, there's um, a, a modest overweight to emerging markets, which, which makes sense given the stronger long-term demand outlook from these economies. So for example, there's, there's more consumers in, in emerging markets by a great amount of soft drinks, sh- shampoo and, and sportswear, for example. Uh, Actually, looking at the, the breakdown of the portfolio by sector is, is more interesting. Uh, and, and you can see it's sort of on the bottom-up nature of, of it. Uh, 85% of the fund is actually held in three sectors. Um, so there's three sectors which we feel are particularly rich hunting grounds for the kinds of companies we like. And those three sectors are consumer staples, technology, and healthcare. And, and in fact, the reality is actually it's, it's certain subsectors within those three areas, which we find particularly attractive. So I'd say that within staples, we're really looking for for global companies with particularly strong brands and uh, staples firms that are well invested in digital. And obviously you could see the importance of that last year as as shops were shut, obviously you need to have a very strong digital presence. Um, So within IT, we prefer software and services rather than the more cyclical hardware and semiconductors. And then I'd say within the healthcare, uh, we prefer the sort of med tech companies with a good level of recurring sales. And here I'd contrast that to to pharma, which we avoid given the patent risk and single product risk. And then I guess just to wrap that up, I said 85% is held in those three areas. Outside of those three areas, there are pockets where we can find some other very attractive companies. So uh, examples here would be some of the information providers, uh, the branded media content. but I say on the whole, is it's more characterized outside of that by, by areas which we avoid. So we avoid capital intensive price takers, really. And so that includes all the miners, utilities and energy companies. OK, so you've already mentioned a couple of stocks in passing. Um, perhaps you could talk us through perhaps a couple of your top holdings or favorite positions at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the largest position in the fund um, is Microsoft, obviously a company everyone will be very well familiar with. Um, it's it's nine percent of the total fund, and it's a long-standing position. 
Um, and really, we, we like Microsoft because it's got a very strong entrenched franchise with Office. And obviously, it has a very large opportunity in cloud with, with Azure. Uh, and also, the company clearly has a, a rock-solid balance sheet. It's one of those rare AAA-rated firms. And clearly, last year, it saw benefit from, from work-from-home trends, as well as the, the COVID crisis accelerating cloud adoption. Um, I'll give another example. This is one of the, the healthcare companies we own. Um, it's really a life science business, Thermo Fisher. So Thermo Fisher, it sells instruments used by academics and researchers at, at pharmaceutical and biotech companies. And the thing to understand about Thermo Fisher is that the use of its products really are deeply embedded in their customers' processes. And, and on top of that, what's also important for us is that the majority of Thermo Fisher's sales are are recurring, so via consumables and services, which, which obviously makes the revenue stream uh, really, really valuable. Uh, say the company overall, yes, yeah, strong organic outlook, but also on top of that, it's been a good allocator of capital, been, has, a, has a very successful M&A strategy. And, and clearly that company has also been able to capitalize on the huge demand for testing services in response to the COVID pandemic. So you say about being embedded within another number of companies' uh, sort of uh, operations, apart from the testing kits that you just uh, mentioned, what, what kind of things would, would that entail? Yeah, so let's say embedded, um, yeah, Thermo Fisher, good example. I guess what we're looking for really is is if you have a franchise which is that so strong that it's difficult to remove, uh, it can't be replaced easily, then that that basically that company should be able to continue to earn high returns. So let's say the that was one example. Other examples I mentioned before, say say Visa, you can think of that with the card network. The fact that it's a powerful network makes it very difficult to replace. And that's that's one of the things um, I mentioned before about it's the strength of the intangibles for the companies we own that matter. It's the strength of their franchise. It's not so much some people think about it in terms of um Perhaps the strength of the the invested capital is really important. It's the it's the kind of how amount of money that's been spent on capex, and we see that as on the whole a weak barrier to entry because there's there's rarely, unfortunately, shortage of people with deep pockets who are willing to to basically uh, cough up if they see a profitable opportunity. So what we're really looking at is companies which have have difficult to replace franchises, which are very well embedded. Um, I don't know if that helps clarify that a bit more. Very much so. Very much so. Now, now clearly, we've been through a, a quite extraordinary uh, 2020. How have you found that the, the fund has been coping, uh, you know, throughout that difficult environment? And indeed, did last year even give you the opportunity to add new names to the portfolio? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, what well, starts off with just by by stressing that the the global brands investment strategy has been. It's long running. It's been running for over over twenty years now, and um, one of the distinguishing features of it has been the kind of consistency of the investment approach here. So, I mean, we're looking to own, say, the best companies in the world, where we have high conviction and the ability of these companies to compound cash flows. So, what I'd say is that during the COVID crisis, the companies we we owned yet again proved robust in a time of turmoil. So they they grew earnings well ahead of the broader market. And, and this makes sense, really, like the level of defensibility the companies we own have, it's, it's sort of in the nature of the companies, given they have 
strong margins, strong cash flows, strong balance sheets. And in addition, some of the companies we own were beneficiaries of certain trends accelerated by COVID. So I mentioned before Microsoft work from home benefits uh, and also mentioned Thermo Fisher with increased testing uh, as examples here. Clearly, some of the the companies we own um, were affected on the negative. So I mentioned before, we talked about Visa. Clearly, that's an example of a company which was hit by lower levels of cross-border payments. However, on the whole, we see those as more temporary phenomenon and there was no sort of longer lasting damage to the franchise of those kinds of companies. Uh, in terms of new names, yes, so the, the, the volatility in the stock markets we saw last year did give us the opportunity to add four um, so great new companies to the portfolio. So uh, one was uh, Procter & Gamble, which I'm sure everyone's very familiar with, a leading staples company. Uh, we also bought LVMH, the world leader in luxury. Uh, and there we had an opportunity to obviously buy this company. It was a particular hit early on, uh, where given the COVID concerns really started in China, and that's obviously a key market for the company. Uh, we also bought uh, Roper Technologies, which is a, a leading US industrial and software provider. We thought that company was perhaps being unmark- unfairly marked down um, because people were over-concerned by the level of cyclicality in the company, which we think actually the, the evolution of that company means it's a lot more robust than it was perhaps being, being given credit for. And then finally, as this is actually later on in the year, we bought Intercontinental Exchange, which is a leading exchange group and data provider. It's probably perhaps best known as the operator of the um, the iconic NICE brand. With that in mind, I'm interested in your answer to, to the final question and, and your um you know, ability to stick with these stocks through thick and thin, namely um, what your outlook is from here and, and how you're kind of positioned or whether you're, you're going to just ride through any upcoming store. Yeah, I mean, well, I'd say the outlook from here, I'd say broadly speaking, I mean, given the rally we've had, I think it's clear that the market is very optimistic about the prospect of an economic recovery on the back of um, successful vaccine rollouts. So I think the starting point is that market expectations are high and also that valuations are high. And arguably, this is perhaps won't be true in, in some of the growth or end of tech, um, certainly given the moves we saw last year. Um, as I mentioned before, I mean, the strategy has been running a long time. It's remained very consistent in approach. Uh, it's been very consistent on, very disciplined on valuation. So overall, I'd say that the, the nature of the companies we own means that we are defensively positioned. Uh, we continue to have uh, high conviction in the ability for the companies we own to, to continue to compound. Um, and just with respect to global brands' equity income, we continue to anticipate the fund to be able to deliver um, the 4% dividend income as has been achieved in the past. Well, unfortunately, that's that's all we've got time for, but uh, extremely interesting, those global brands that you mentioned. So uh, many thanks again for your time, Richard, and for those valuable insights. That's Richard Perrot, one of the portfolio managers of the Morgan Stanley Global Brands Equity Income Fund. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to like and subscribe. And of course, you can find much more by the way of investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. I'll be back next Tuesday with another Richard Hunter interview. Bye for now.